Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about our work at chicagojustice.org. And if you want to get involved, hit up cjpnation.org and you can get involved in our research, advocacy, public policy work, all of it. So today in the pod, we're going to be covering a couple examples from the Sun-Times and ABC7 of total journalism hackery. A great example of what is wrong with crime and violence reporting in Chicago. And then our last piece will be the, the fake crime fighter, that is Ken Griffin's governor candidate, for the new candidate for Illinois governor from the Republicans, and an example of good journalism in Chicago. Okay, so on to our first piece. It's from the Chicago Sun-Times by David Strott, is how I'm going to pronounce it. Title of the article is Top Cop Says No Evidence of Misconduct in Decision Not to Impound Car of High-Ranking Chief After Nice Stopped in Drug Arrest. So about a week ago or so, ladies and gentlemen, the niece of internal chief, internal affairs chief Yolanda Talley was pulled over driving the chief's car. And in the passenger seat was a gentleman who had thrown out of the car as the cops approached something like 40 grams, 60 different wrapped up bags of heroin, supposedly with a street value of about $6,000. That story blew up. We'll talk about what um, what I find important about the story and what the media seems to be concentrating on about what's important with the story. The keys in the keys to know for you are that the car was not seized. So when someone gets busted for drug possession, illegal drug possession in Chicago, they almost always seize the car. That's right. And you have to go back to court and it's the burden on the owner to prove that the car was not purchased with drug money. Talking about just corrupt, corrupt, corrupt practices in Chicago. But that is true. In this case, the car was not seized because it seems like it was owned by the chief of internal affairs. The superintendent say, well, no, that's not what's happening. Mm, really? And that there's an internal investigation, so we don't know. Now, here's the part that I think is most important. That is not getting the coverage that it should. Although, let me caution, it is from a single source. So you're talking about crap hackery journalism from the Sun-Times. It came from a single source and they keep reporting it and it keeps coming from a single source. They don't have any additional sources on it. And what's that? The cops that were involved in this traffic stop and arrest were sat down supposedly, taken off the street, put on desk duty, what's called soft desk duty. So they weren't officially put there, but they were ordered by their boss to stay off the street and be go through retraining. And they still only have a single source. And they, when you're reporting it out, because this is one of the later stories, they still say a source says a single source. Yes, it's interesting that it's uh, the chief's car. But it's only minorly, in my version, interesting that it's the chief's car. There's no reason, there's no evidence. And it's the least, at least to this point, that she knew it was being used by someone in possession of such a large amount of drugs who obviously was selling drugs. So 
the important things for I'm concerned is why wasn't the car seized and why were the cops sat down? Now, we don't have actual real confirmation that the cops were sat down. Now, the Sun-Times, in their hackery, doubled down and said, got another single source that said, maybe the same one, we don't know, only three cops could do it. That uh, Superintendent Brown and his two, Eric Carter and someone else in the top administration, only those three people could do it. Really? Now, remember, ladies and gentlemen, the rank and file hate Brown, hate Carter. So they're going to push everything towards them. So if the cops were sat down, what is the context that's needed in this, in this instant? If the cops were sat down, well, first of all, confirm that they were. Who's their boss? Who's their boss's boss? And go up the chain of command and nail each one of them, put them on the record, put them on television, answering questions, were these guys sat down? A second part of this, does this happen regularly? I mean, were they sat down because it was the chief's car? Did they do something wrong? We still don't know that yet. It's alleged they got sat down because it was the chief's car. But since we only have a single source and they haven't really provided much information, we don't know that. My bet would be that this sit-down practice is much more common than people are talking about. But since we have total hackery as crime reporters in Chicago, and they're not really police reporters, we don't know this context. So we don't know. Only three cops could do it. Well, what could they do? Brown has referred this whole incident to the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General, the Office of Inspector General's office. So that allows him, one, to get hands off, which he should have hands off the investigation, but he should be forced to still answer questions. What do you know about it? Did you inquire about down the chief, down the uh, uh, chain of command to find out what's going on? When did you hear about it? Who told you? He shouldn't be able to dodge that saying, there's an internal investigation, I can't talk about it. He just shouldn't be able to do that. So we're going to turn to some reporting by Sam Charles uh, from the Sun Times, uh, I think formerly from the Sun Times, now at WGN TV, with an article called Man Arrested in CPD Chief's Car Gave Police Bad Info Used in Botch Raid at Ann Jeanette Young's House. Remember that incident? This guy seems to be the source for that info. Here's that story.
Okay, we're back. So it seems to line up that this gentleman, I've seen other things at other outlets, was the source for that info. Okay. Now the media and everyone seems to be outraged at this. Well, first of all, Sam Charles, bad info. Well, that may have been where he saw a gun at some point. They say, well, he pointed them to Anjan Nut Young's apartment. He did not do that. That is a lie. In fact, the cops hit, they were not aiming for Anjanette Young's apartment, but they're so incompetent, they raided the wrong place. The info this guy gave them was a couple doors down. Now, it turns out if, if he said he got a gun that day or saw a gun the night before, that was obviously wrong because the guy that they were actually looking for was in Cook County Jail. But he did not say, he did not point and say, get to that specific apartment and Jeanette Young's. That's wrong. The interesting part as this aspect of the story is that this is who the cops do business with. It is guys like this. That's how a lot of murders get solved, is pinching, arresting guys on smaller crimes like this or burglaries or armed robberies, and they give up people. This is who traffics in this type of information that become these anonymous sources. It's guys like this. Now, the question for the police department, one, why did you find him credible? What else has he told you about? Has he told you the other things that led to arrests or not arrests? You don't get those answers here. And it's hard because to some extent you want to protect this guy if he did give up other info confidentially. But the, we, we need to know some of these answers. And once again, this is not a sophisticated story by Charles. This is more hackery. It is, it's interesting that you made that connection, but there's no body to this story. It's a one minute and 20 second story. What, what is the audience getting from a minute and 20 seconds? This is just something they, it was kind of breaking in other outlets. They wanted to get their piece up. They don't care how shallow it is. They just don't want to be told, quote unquote, scooped. Hackery. Remember, no one is talking about the two pieces, two aspects majorly that no one's talking about is the cops getting sat down and this guy is the source. These stories are the embodiment of everything that's wrong with local reporting. All flash, not a lot of substance, and they don't follow up on the things that need it. This could be a very important story. Why did the cops get sound, get sound? Is there a practice of it? Who was involved in it? Let's go get them. Now, remember, ladies and gentlemen, this deputy, this investigation from the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General's Office, which CJP and myself were involved, is one of the um, catalysts for that office being created. Their investigations are not open to the public. Mayor Lightfoot has sole discretion sole discretion which of those reports to release. So if you're interested in that and interested in getting reports like that, like the investigation into Anjanette Young, the investigation into Eddie Johnson's DUI and all of that, join us. I think it's going to be Friday, March 10th. If I got the information right, we are doing a day of action against the mayor to propel her to release these types of reports. 
go to cjpnation.org, fill out the info, and we will be in touch um, to help you. Or hit us up on Twitter at CJP, uh, CJP Just Prize, and we will um, get you the info. We'll get you the toolkit for our day of action that's coming up. On our second segment today, we go to a piece from ABC7 Chicago, Stacy Baca. Magnificent mild violent crimes are on the rise. Association calls on state's attorney to prosecute. You're going to act be shocked by this, but these are white people saying the state's attorney ain't doing their job. And just for the record, Kimberly, I want to say Bales, for the Magnificent Mile Association, which is the Association pushing the story, this press release that Stacey Baca makes into uh, a story. We've invited her yesterday to come on the show. We'll see if she takes us up on that. I'd really like to talk to her about what is making her think the state's attorney isn't prosecuting people. It would be really interesting. I have a feeling it's going to be um, mimicking a lot of the mayor's and superintendents talking points, someone should FOIA emails between them and the mayor's office just to see, um, and text and as it is, they're on a Slack channel together that got uncovered recently um, to see if there's communication, if they were put up for this by the mayor's office. So let's listen to the piece. It's around two minutes and 38 seconds, and then I'll be back. Violent crimes are on the rise on the Magnificent Mile. There have been several robberies as well as carjackings and shootings nearby in the last few months. And that is prompting action from an influential organization. It is rare for the president and CEO of the Magnificent Mile Association to talk about crime. But she says with recent events, they're stepping up to the challenge. Another crime this week on the Magnificent Mile on Thursday afternoon, Thieves swipe coats from Canada Goose. It's the latest criminal case. Violent crime has been up, um, and that's what has us concerned. Uh, carjackings and uh, recovery of guns, um, some shootings, those kinds of things. Kimberly Bears is the president and CEO of the Magnificent Mile Association, which has more than 500 members, including retailers. We want to see the Cook County State's Attorney's Office prosecuting. When the police have put together a solid case, we want to see that prosecuted. And then we want to see the, uh, the judiciary sentence appropriately. Violent crime is rising in zip code 60611, which includes the Mag Mile, but it still has a lower violent crime rate than the city. So far this year, 30 violent crimes have been reported in the zip code, up from 22 for the same period last year. And for a year-to-year -year comparison, in 2021, there were 313 violent crimes reported in 60611, up a third from 2020. I generally feel safe down here. However, I worry about the crime. It's been pretty bad. Uh, all these boutique stores getting hit and uh, you don't want to be in that situation. Bear says the Meg Mile is critical. It generates $2 billion a year in property taxes. 20% of Chicago jobs are in the area, along with two thirds of Chicago hotel rooms. So when I start to put those statistics together, I think people then understand why this district is so important. And while finding crime was not part of the Magnificent Mile Association's focus in the past, it is now. It, it's not been in our history to do a lot around public safety and advocacy. That's not what we were really built for. But you've seen us respond. You've seen us step up to the challenge. We will continue to do that. 
Well, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office issued a statement that says, in part, public safety is the top priority of this office, and we will continue to hold those accountable for driving the violence in our communities. A spokesman for Mayor Lightfoot said public safety requires partnerships between government, business, and the community, and that the mayor is firmly committed to strengthening those partnerships. Okay, so we're back. Total hackery, right, ladies and gentlemen? Baca basically, for the most part, reports a press release from the Magnificent Mile Association. She doesn't push back on anything. Now, basically what she does is it's three different press releases, right? She does the Magnificent Mile Association, and she got the president as a talking head that reiterates some of the press release they sent out. Then she reads a press release, basically a statement from the SAO, the state attorney's office, and she reads, reads a statement or a press release from the Mayor Lightfoot's office. A computer could have done just as well a story. There's really no reason to do this story the way it was done. When I say push back, Loyola University of Chicago's Criminal Justice and Criminology Department, Dr. Dave Olson and Dr. Dr. Don Steeman and others, have done two studies looking at bail reform. One before, after, I think 18 months on each side of it when it started, 18 months pre and post the implementation, no significant increase in crime as due to bail reform. We also did one looking at like five plus years of prosecution of gun crimes in Illinois all data independent of just getting it right from the state's attorney. And that data came from the administrative office of Illinois courts. And so the first analysis said no, when it did pre-post, no significant increase in crime due to bail, the implementation, implementation of bail reform in late 2016. The second one looked at like five or six years of data, a little bit of pre and then mostly post bail reform. And what it showed is Kim Fox's office basically had the, on average, the strongest sentences for gun crimes in the state of Illinois. Then you just look at just recently, this Chicago Tribune, Annie Sweeney, and I forgot who the other journalist was on that story, basically documented how the mayor and the superintendent have been pushing this anti-bail reform, this judge's lenient on stuff, and how none of the data backs it up. They're just basically full of crapola. All of that is in the public record. All of that is out there. We've talked about all of that on our show. Stacey Baca doesn't bring that up at all. Well, how about a question? What makes you think the superintendent, the, 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 Cook County State's Attorney isn't prosecuting people. What makes you think the judges aren't sentencing people? What data do you have to support that besides the lies from the mayor and the superintendent and the alt-right in Chicago? What makes you think that? There's not a shred of data to back that up. Not a shred of data. It isn't people out on bail reform that is pushing the crime and violence. 2016, late 2016 bail reform was implemented. 17, 18, 19, crime goes down. Early in 20, crime starts increasing in Chicago. Now, what we're going to learn is we were, we're going to learn that the virus, COVID, 
was introduced into the states, the United States, in summer, late summer, at least, I think the latest info we have is they believe it's at least made it to our shores in August of 2016. That means it would have already been affecting what's going on in major cities that have direct flights to China, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, other major cities. So some reason in 20, violence starts increasing, definitely increases during the pandemic. All the blame that is bail reform, a practice, by the way, that went into place in late 2016 at the end of a very high violent area, a violent crime year, which by the way, 16 was more violent than 20, despite the media reporting, look at the numbers, but somehow all the crime and violence is due to bail reform and lenient judges. Really? Then why didn't it increase crime in 17, 18, and 19? No answer. But they don't have to worry about answer because Baca doesn't know what the hell she's talking about and doesn't ever post a question. He's more or less complaining. When you talk about misinformation and fake news, this is it. The judges are too mean and the prosecutors aren't prosecuting, although we have absolutely no data to back that up. It's not, it doesn't reflect reality whatsoever. She's basically taking the FOP for police and the alt-right complaining about bond reform with no evidence, about it having an impact. That is, ex She's just taking that and regurgitating it. Just another white person screaming into the microphone about stuff they know nothing about what they're talking about. Okay, our third piece is titled Richard, Richard Irvin's Tough on Crime Campaign for Governor Ignores His Years as a Criminal Defense Attorney. It's an article from the Chicago Tribune by Jeremy Gorner and Megan Jones. It is a great piece. So we're going to go from me media hackery to political hackery. So who is Richard Irvin? He's an Aurora mayor, the pet candidate of Ken Griffin, CEO of Citadel, a hedge fund. He just, Griffin just put 20 million behind Richard Irvin. He's really, he's really behind him. I don't know what he's doing. Like that's going to be a lot of money. Pritzker's billionaire too. And I think has more money than Griffin. So I'm not sure really where that's going, but Griffin's doing it because he wants a tough on crime candidate because here's another white guy who thinks he knows what he's talking about. Just like the previous white woman who thought the hell she knew what she was talking about. We need to get tough on crime. As I told you, they don't know what the hell they're talking about, but Here's Aurora Mayor. He's going to get tough on crime. He's tough on crime. So in a minute, we're going to play a piece of his campaign ad. It was a three-minute. I'm not going to play the whole thing about crime and violence. So remember, Irvin spent five years only, five, as a prosecutor in Cook County and Kane. So not 10 years, a total of five years. Why he would go from Cook County and into Kane is anyone's guess. Maybe he had a desire to go um, go be in politics out in the um, Western Burbs or something. And if you get, you'll hear it in the piece, one time prosecutor puts gangsters, drug dealers, and wife beaters in jail. Let's listen to the piece and we'll look at how the Tribune discusses what might be missing. In law school, to become a hands-on prosecutor, going on police raids, taking back one corner or apartment complex at a time, putting gangbangers, drug dealers, and wife beaters in prison. 
I've seen it up close. Defund the police is dumb, dangerous, and it costs lives. And I believe that all lives matter. Every family should be safe. Running our second largest city, crimes come down because the police budget has gone up. I hired more cops each year. Wow, that sounds like a guy that's got a long history of being tough on crime. So he goes from 1997 getting out of law school, and he's a prosecutor till 2002. And then he becomes Aurora's mayor in 2017. What does he do for those 15 years, though? I'm sure it had to be him being incredibly tough on crime. Hmm. Let's see what the Tribune says from the article. Shortly before becoming mayor of Aurora in 2017 and stepping away from his law practice, he was in private practice. For example, he represented a man accused of attacking a police officer. He also represented clients accused of kidnapping, domestic violence, and sexual assault. Ooh, tough on crime. The article continues. His original firm's website said 90% of Irvin's focus as an attorney was on criminal defense, and that the firm handling handled drug cases and an array of felony cases ranging from robbery and burglary to home invasion and reckless homicide. It continues. The site explained how a domestic battery charge can be successfully defended in court if the victim is the only person present when the battery occurs and the victim does not appear in court. The state cannot prevail in the case. Hey, make sure the person you beat up doesn't show up for court. That was my content. That's not from the article. The article continues. During the 2020 civil unrest following the death of George Floyd, Irvin staunchly endorsed the Black Lives Matter movement, which was becoming synonymous with a push to fully or partially reallocate police resources to communities in economic peril, sometimes referred to as defunding the police. Wow. Now, if you heard in that article in, the, in his campaign ad, you heard a different tone. All lives matter. Defunding is stupid. Wow. Did you have like a change of heart? Or are you an absolute hypocrite? And you're just marching to whatever Ken Griffin tells you to do. I mean, five years as a prosecutor, 15 years as criminal defense, defending people of the most serious crimes in the world. And yes, they totally deserve a defense. And I'm all for that, rigorous as can be. But when you're a rigorous criminal defense attorney, Defending people of the worst crimes for 15 years. Do you get to claim a strong history and record of tough on crime? It would seem to me that you would be able to claim a soft on crime background. Why is your soft on crime background of 15 years so much less important than your five years of supposedly tough on crime? Right, because it's bullshit. The article continues. Irvin in 2007 represented Juan Martinez, one of several alleged gang members accused of abducting eight people, four of them children or teenagers, from a restaurant at gunpoint and holding them captive at a Carpentersville home. Court records show. It continues. Another client of Irvin's was Enrique Prado, convicted of concealing the 2013 homicidal death of an 18-year-old Abigail Villapando 
cut records show. Villapando is described by relatives and co-workers as a hardworking teenager who aspired to become a cop, was beaten with a hammer, doused with gasoline, and set on fire. An arson charge against Prado was later dropped. This is Ken Griffin's Tough on Crime candidate, right? Now, the Tough on Crime, there's no data to prove the new policies like bail reform are having any impact on crime and violence. So to fight the non-problem, Griffin goes and digs up the Aurora mayor, who he's going to project as tough on crime. When he spent the 15 years becoming mayor, defending the, peop the people of the most serious offenses, kidnapping, murder, domestic violence. And they do deserve it. You don't get to have that background and then go on television and say you're tough on crime. You do if you're a fraud. But Ken Griffin's a fraud. He just wants fraud candidates. Anything he can possibly do to lower his taxes and make the most underserved communities of color in Chicago even more underserved, Ken Griffin will do. Ken Griffin liked Ram, he liked Rauner, and now he likes Irvin. Frauds, horrible, disgusting, racist people. This is who Griffin has. And Irvin's black, but now he's got his black candidate from Aurora who's just gonna lie about his background over 15 years. How does, how does Griffin think Ken, Irvin is going to pass muster in this election. He's going to get destroyed on his record. There are people like me, I used to do this back in the day for a couple of years, that op researchers that are going through every case, I'm sure this story was probably fed to them by Pritzker's people, by the Democrats' people, that are going through every case that Irvin defended over 15 years. There's no way Griffin did that background check. Can you imagine what's going to come out in these ads about Griffin? I mean, about Irvin? He's going to get destroyed. I don't know what Griffin's thinking about. But, you know, frauds are um, a dime a dozen in Illinois' politics, for sure. And Griffin just dumped $20 million to back this one. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Once again, go to cjpnation.org to jump in on, I think it is March 10th or 11th, our, um, next, our first day of action. We'd really appreciate it. We're going to try to hammer the mayor and try to get her to release the Anjanette Young investigative report from the Inspector General's office, the investigative reports of Eddie Johnson and his DUI, which really eventually led to his firing, and the investigative report into the follow-up of those of the officers on the scene that let Eddie Johnson go. So if you want to take part, cjpnation.org. Otherwise, I will talk to you all next week. Talk to you then.